You know you've got to sing along. But don't you know This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Sean Frankson. Sean, are you ready to be great today? I'm always good. Thanks for having me. Sean is a founder and CTO for Plastic Bank, a social enterprise that makes plastic waste a currency to fight ocean plastic while reducing global poverty at the same time. Plastic Bank creates ethically sourced recycling ecosystems that ignite a social plastic revolution, uniting and enrolling humanity for local action that creates a global impact. Sean is globally recognized as a leading authority on blockchain for good and designing systems for the world's bottom billion. Sean's mission is to inspire others to live a life of purpose and love every minute of it. Sean, thank you very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Sean, um, a question I went to your LinkedIn profile and, and, and did some research there. In your bio there says that over time you created a system to strategize the blank out of anything. Can you explain that? Yeah. This is really so interesting. Yeah, you know, I'm a guy who loves strategy. Even my tattoos say strategize as part of uh, what I got the full sleeves going here. And, you know, over time, I started to really look at just, you know, systematically, how can you just make anything kind of exponential and everything possible? And, you know, sometimes it just comes back to such a simple premise that, you know, for whatever big thing you're trying to achieve, it's no one is ever the person today that can achieve that. It's always this understanding of you just commit to become the person you need to be, commit to figure it out. You know, then you really can just work backwards from what is this big blurry something you're trying to achieve and just figure out all those steps and, you know, really be confident that you don't need all the answers. You just need enough to move forward and you can start adapting and finding the way to really solve anything when you just have that unlimited mindset that, you know, as long as you put the time, effort and thought into something, there's a confidence that you, you can figure it out if it's worth figuring it out. I think, I think it was Richard Branch who said, if you get an offer, you know how to do it, take it anyway, just figure it out later on. Right. Yeah. No. And that's, you know, such an entrepreneurial nature of not, ha- not having a clear path, not knowing all the answers, but just knowing you can, you know, pioneer the path and having faith in that. So your, your tattoos, have you always been a tattoo guy or you started doing tattoos later on in life? Yeah, you know, you know my quick backstory out of high school, I played in a rock band, had permanent blue hair, started getting tattoos when I was about 22 years old, as in a near-death car accident, realized, you know what, I, 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 I want to be an international change the world strategist. Like that was where my heart and passion was. And when I came up with my core values, which is my main tattoos, which was to create uh, strategize and somewhere around here <laughs> to inspire. <laughs> and, you know, I built my life around how do you inspire purpose, create opportunities. And as you said, strategize the blank out of things and just really build a life of getting good at those things to become the foundation to just, you know, love the, what I do for a living and do it for purpose. 
Sean, why do you think we're so addicted to plastic? I mean, it hasn't always been that way, right? I mean, this plastic thing is just a recent phenomenon with, with the human race, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such an odd substance and then when it was introduced, say, 50, 60 years ago, you know, it was introduced as a throwaway substance. There's even these commercials where it say, now mom doesn't need to do the dishes. And they had these throwaway cutlery. And the irony is, you know, plastic's an incredibly useful material when it's treated responsibly, used responsibly, but it's an absolute, you know, permanent material that can and should be a closed loop material that if you're going to use it, there should be an incredibly definitive way of what do you do after you use it? Did you need to use it for that purpose? So I know there's a bit of a movement these days of get rid of every form of plastic, but I think, you know, that's a bit of a flawed movement when we look at things that some of the alternatives can be way worse for the environment. We already have over four you know, trillion kilos of plastic sitting on this planet. And if used responsibly and continuously reused and always seeing as something that's either permanent and closed loop and never something that's waste, you know, I think the world could have a very different relationship with plastic, but the way it was introduced, the habits people have had, you know, the world has just always had this misguided relationship to plastic being free, it comes in, you know, products, it's a throwaway. And, you know, our, a lot of our movement is that paradigm that plastic has value, has to be treated responsibly. And, you know, really there is a way the world can play a part in just closing this loop over and over or reducing their footprint and using less just where it's not needed. And, you know, I think finally in the last two years, we're seeing a very different world in the way the average person is treating sustainability the way they're treating materials. So, you know, I'm optimistic that with, a not lo- with enough, you know, long-term perspective and not just plastic, but other materials, we could live in a world without waste because simply, you know, a seven point something billion people and growing, we can't live in a world with waste. There's a certain time that that's just unsustainable in any form. So I- I'm a believer in, you know, a proactive, you know, person of being involved in these solutions but I'm a believer that there is a way with a long enough time we can live in a closed loop world. So, so I'm pretty sure this is true. I'm, I'm 95% this is true. So before the first Gulf War, the U.S. military would uh, like use local water resources and filter out using chemicals or whatever they did. And then I believe in the, the first Gulf War, the logistics, U.S. Army logistics general made a decision. No, we're going to use, we're going to ship, you know, all these water bottles over there. And in my mind, honestly, in my mind, that's when all the practices have kicked off. Like people started using water bottles. Oh, it's good enough for the US military war. It's good enough for, for us now. Cause I remember before then, like you would drink water out of the faucets, you know, maybe buy the two water gallon. And now everyone like water bottles, water bottles, water bottles. And to me, in my mind, that's where it all started from. Yeah. No. And I think there's probably a lot of like case studies in a lot of uh, different ways. And, uh, but yeah, no, there's just a lot of, there, a lot of things that we don't need to use plastic for. Some things that some people think, you know, we should use metal and glass for that it would actually be worse for the environment in some cases. So, you know, it's not always the easiest answer of what's better, but I think the more we always keep looking for how do we get better, you know, out of all the alternatives, what is the best way? And, you know, almost everything we use as a society and even beyond plastic, we always got to look at, you know, is there a better use of this? Is there, a re, you know, a refillable use of a lot of things? And, even as you said, with filters, sometimes you can have technology catch up that, you know, some areas of the world, you do need, you know, a plastic bottle or another form of water up until we have ways that how do we filter water better than we get back to just refilling water bottles everywhere as, you know, way it all changes over time. Now, how long does it take for plastic to biodegrade? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think it's all theoretical. So if you put plastic in a landfill, if you put it in the ocean, I think the theory is that, you know, after a couple hundred to thousand years, it'll break down. But this is where the concept of a plastic biodegrading breaking down, you know, it's got to be treated as permanent and reusable. As soon as we look at how do we dispose it and have it dispose over time, you know, I think we already break the mind cycle of it's got to be closed loop or not used. So how do we get people off plastic? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of different things. And, you know, not everything really needs to be, a, you know, off plastic completely when it's used responsibly and the loop is closed. But, you know, I always look at these. You can, uh, you know, have a plastic reuse or like a plastic spoon, a biodegradable spoon, a compostable spoon. And I think out of all the options, I still don't think any of those are better than washing a metal spoon. And I think there's a lot of things that, you know, even I, I once had somebody at a speaking event have a really good comment about how do you get rid of, you know, all the uh, plastic and packaging that comes with fast food. And we have such a fast food culture. And one of his simple answers is, you know, we can always just sit down and eat the food. Like we don't need to take everything to go. Then we wouldn't need to go containers. If as a culture, we just got back to enjoying food and taking time. And there's a lot of those things when you take some thought, I know a lot of people talk about, let's get rid of straws, which you know, there is no use to straws, but it's such a bigger issue than straws. But even when you take a second look at a straw, it's why, why did you need the straw in the first place? And there's a lot of things we just don't think about. And why did you need the fast food? Did you not have five minutes to enjoy food? <laughs> That's a very good point. I mean, as, as culture side, we're a place like we don't enjoy anything right now. So it's rush, 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 hurry, 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 go to the next thing. Like we don't have even five minutes to sit down and enjoy a meal. Yeah. And the fun thing I found with cooking and, you know, again, beyond plastic and packaging, once I really started to try to just eat, you know, fresh vegetables, fresh food, you know, even I I eat mostly like vegan myself now, but what, like if you even get, you know, fresh produce, fresh, even meats or whatever it is you eat and get rid of all the packaging and then you compost that, it's amazing how you can go from bags of garbage to almost nothing just by even eating healthier. So even I've found learning to cook was almost a great way to reduce your footprint without even recognizing it was happening. So how long have you been a vegan? You know what? I've just really, I'm about two months in on it. I've normally been a pescatarian as my normal kind of diets and no red meats. And so, and I always look at these sometimes as more of cooking adventures than diets. Cause once you, you know, have fun cooking, all of a sudden, it's a fun challenge of how to, you know, when I was pescatarian, how do you just enjoy fish? How do you do fresh veggies and that's And, you know, ever since I've done the, as I call it, the mostly plant-based diet, I treat it as a cooking challenge more than anything, which just kind of becomes a fun new habit and routine to add in. So last year, I actually did a whole year as a vegan last year, which is pretty interesting. It was crazy. Like, I didn't really crave meat or anything. What I crave, I crave cheese for some reason. I was craving cheese. Everything else was okay. You know, I didn't, you know, of course I smelled something that smelled nice, you know, okay. That'd be nice to have. But for me, it was the cheese. Like it was, it was my craving was the cheese. Yeah. So if anything, I think when I say mostly plant-based, I think Octolavo is technically when you're still, you know, able to do the cheese and the eggs, things that, you know, essentially it's a no death, <laughs> uh, you know, exception to the ones that fit in. Uh, but you know, th- those are the ones that I've been doing right now. And then, I've been surprised. Like I work out quite a bit and I thought cutting out meat of where's the energy going to come from. But that's been one myth that's been distilled in my mind. That's uh, I I feel good. So 
you know, I, I'm kind of shocked with how easy it is compared to all these roadblocks in my mind of how hard I thought it would be. Definitely. So Sean, you have a passion for helping out the world's bottom billion. I mean, that's a pretty good, pretty big undertaking, uh, the bottom billion. How did that come about and how are you approaching doing this? Yeah. So with Plastic Bank, when we started to look at how do we, you know, turn off the tap and stop that flow of plastic into the ocean, we recognize about 80% of ocean plastics coming from developing countries where there's almost no waste management systems. And, you know, the more you spend time with people and you learn and you listen, you realize you know, all these people, they're just in such a state of disadvantage. And, you know, when untapped and unlocked, they're smart, creative, loving people with pride. And it's just amazing once you understand this yeah, state of disadvantage. And when someone's just trying to survive for the day, it's really impossible for them to see beyond that day to see, you know, the environment, the ocean, the interconnectedness. And, you know, as a personal kind of thing that just really connects with my core values of inspiring purpose, you know, when we look at this hierarchy of needs where someone can provide for themselves or family and start seeing beyond that, you know, what an amazing thing if one, you know, as someone who loves living a life of purpose, loves how do we bring purpose into more people's lives. But when we look at this, how could we literally help, you know, these vulnerable people get to a point of purpose in their life? To me, that becomes a really cool you know, level of where, you know, you know, that's meaningful when you can unlock purpose on these scales. So, you know, for us, it's really a means of how do we stop ocean plastic? The poverty is a huge part of this connection of if we can have people not just recycle for a living, but use recycling as a starting point to a better life where we pay a special bonus payment on top of the market rate of plastic, where our goals, someone can recycle their way to be an entrepreneur, to be a teacher you know, something beyond recycling. And that way, it's just a starting point. And when we can bring in this way of teaching literacy, we provide often people with their first digital ID, their first digital bank account, their first access to a smartphone training and education, you know, really, it can be that pathway to a better life. And, you know, to me, that that really connects the dots to make a lot of this, you know, kind of create a movement where everyone's playing a part you know, where really that's the beneficiary of it is the oceans being saved. It is the, you know, marine life, but it's also this platform to lift people up, which uh, to me is a huge, uh, you know, part of where my heart is. Sean, so which developing countries are y'all are in right now? Yeah, we're in Haiti, Philippines, Indonesia, Brazil, and Egypt. And then we'll, as we keep growing our team, we'll be expanding more and more faster around the world. So are y'all a nonprofit or a for-profit company? Yeah, we're a for-profit social enterprise. And for us, it's really important that, you know, really when there's something in it for everyone and even all of our partners in our ecosystems, it really just becomes good business to do the right thing. And we can grow and self-sustain our impact, you know, by our own revenue. So, you know, we don't rely on grant money or funding. We are just a revenue impact generating company, which also means that we can continuously just sustain our promises year after year. And, you know, do it by good business strategy as compared to relying on, you know, funding or other streams that can, uh, you know, dry up like out of our control. So I have to imagine it's a challenge like being in different countries and we're dealing with different cultures, different languages, different personalities, different ways to do business, you know, and all that kind of stuff. How do you deal with all those moving pieces? Oh, you know, it's a fun challenge where there's been times when we start is probably, you know, the biggest challenge to figure out. Uh, we have to set up new businesses in every country. We hire local country managers who hire local teams. 
And we really do it as a try to localize the programs as much as possible. So I always look at our plastic bank model, let's call it as 50% like cookie cutter and 50% completely adapted to that local culture. And for us, it's so important that it's not, you know, a foreign entity coming in to save people. It's how do we create these, you know, local entrepreneurs to just empower their own communities. And when you have a community driven impact, you know, it's accepted and loved so differently when it's, you know, the local Haiti plastic bank, not our plastic bank. And I think it's a big part of how do you respect the cultures and really lift those cultures up without coming in and, you know, try to say recycle because we do it in the West. It's really how do we have a community now create opportunity for that community? And we're a very community-driven program. And I think it's very important that, you know, even when we look at the gamification of what we do, it's not just the gamification of more recycling. We try to look at how do we dignify recycling and almost gamify that life ascension of someone becoming incredibly dignified through the program, which is all just critical for us. So, so how often do you go visit all these places or do you mainly run everything remotely through Zoom and other technologies? Yeah. So, you know, I've been to all of the countries that we started and we just came back as a team from Bali, Indonesia. So the bigger our team gets, the less, you know, anyone from the head office has to be there as part of setup and operations. But myself, right, you know, design all of the technology, run our applications, uh, design technology for literate first-time phone users to be onboarded to start using everything. For me, it's critical to really just look and listen and understand. Uh, so if you don't see things from your own eyes, like there is no way to, you, you know, do some of these things just sitting at a desk. So for us, especially there's areas with, you know, very little access to connectivity that sitting and learning and observing and just, you know, asking the right questions is a key part of how do we localize and build programs for, you know, what the, everyone needs and not just what we think they need. So Sean, a question, you know, those people out there who are what we're calling like pro-environmental, right? They understand what's going on. They understand the cause. But then you have what I call the anti-environmental who are like, no, matter what you tell them, they don't believe there's, they don't believe in all this, you know, all this stuff going on. How do you convince the anti-environmental people that know what you're doing is important and they need to, need to get on board? Yeah, it's been a funny changing world. So let's say seven years ago when we started the company, we had to convince companies that people would care about ocean plastic because it wasn't the hot button at that time. You know, we had to convince people that a like ethically sourced, like transparent supply chain would become a new standard. And, you know, the world's been changing so fast. And a lot of the people call it like the Greta generation, where once there's this paradigm of, huh, it is possible to do good. It is possible for, you know, individuals to change companies. It's getting a lot easier in that, you know, we've said no to a lot of companies when we felt it be values misaligned, you know, but I've come to learn over time, as much as we call it like companies, <laughs> it's people within the companies. And there's more and more decision makers I've found who say, let's talk about how to do it the right way, you know, because they want to tell their kids this is what I do for a living. And I think this has been so new that, you know, there's a phrase, a man changed against his will is of the same opinion still. And someone to me that is so hardwired that they're not going to listen isn't really the people that we try to convince because there's so many people looking for an outlet of purpose, looking to bring good to their own companies that we really just bring them as the champions. And we just kind of become the guide to how can anyone bring good to their company and as long as they genuinely want to do it the right way, 
there's usually a way we can all work together and just make something great. So Sean, for plastic, is there like different kinds of plastic or is plastic plastic? Oh, there's different kinds of plastic. So, you know, some of the myths around plastic recycling, when people say, oh, like China has stopped, you know, recycling, so recycling doesn't work. People used to ship, you know, containers of garbage to China so that somebody could sort through, take the little bits of recycling from that garbage and recycle it, leave the rest of the garbage in China. So, you know, one, once plastic is always just sorted, segmented by type and color, it's fully recyclable. Like we have all the tools and technology right now to recycle all of the commonly used plastics as long as it's sorted. Now, one of the things with our programs, um, which I thought would be a disadvantage when we started, but it's actually an advantage, it's all hand sorted at the time a collector picks up all the plastic, comes to our location, they sort it by type, by color, and it's never mixed from that point, which is the easiest to recycle, highest value you can give someone. So plastic normally has the HDPE, the PP, PETs, the most common plastics, and LDPE is usually the bags. And when everything's usually just those four common plastics, when treated right, it's all recyclable and all able to be used again and again. I think they actually say that by the 10th time you recycle something, you might need to add a little bit more, say, new plastic or higher grade because it might start breaking down. But I don't think there's anything on this planet that's been recycled more than twice, we let alone 10 times. So once it's just, you know, labeled properly, sorted properly, it is something that can be recycled again and again and just continuously reused in something that's appropriate for that type of plastic. I know here in the United States, a lot of people complain about recycling, you know, oh, I got to separate the cardboard from the paper from this. But like I was in the army and like in, like in Germany and Korea, other places, like there's literally like 10 recycling bins, right? And you got to separate every single thing, you know, yeah. and don't get me wrong, it's a pain at first, but you're used to it, right? No, exactly. It. Like for some, the separation seems so intimidating that it's not worth doing. But once you get in the habit of just this goes here, that goes there. And the more, you know, better labeled things get like it's confusing when you get even like a plate and you say, well, is this plastic? Is it compostable? I don't know. But all of a sudden, you know, it's hard on your brain to do the right thing. This is where the more, you know, there's the habits of what goes where and why you know, it becomes nice and easy. And I think over time, it all just becomes second nature. And even composting was something original. I'm like, I, doesn't food biodegrade? What's the difference? And you learn, oh, wow, it's terrible when food's in a landfill. It seems like a lot of effort. But then once it's a routine, it's you cook and put in the compost. Like, it's just habit. Yeah, speaking about China recycling, like I live in the Seattle, Tacoma area. And recently... China stopped taking our, our local recycling company's recycler, right? So they, re, they changed all the recycling stuff. So we, I think we used to be able to recycle eight things. Now it's down like two or three things, right? So yeah. they, like it's completely changed. So either, I don't know, the contract got canceled, something happened, or China's no longer taking the recycling from the local recycling company. So that was a big change. And it's real confused. Like, you don't take this, you take this. Like, what's going on? Yeah, and the hard thing is if everything was sorted properly and sent to the right facilities, everything can be recycled. The world had an overdependence on why build the infrastructure you need everywhere in the world to be closed loop when we could all just ship it to one place. So there's been a big shift in investment money of, you know, even places in Europe and North America, there's no reason that we should ever need to ship our anything out of country when it could be recycled and reused locally. It could just stay local, be reused again and again, and again, being reused responsibly. 
But the concept of we can just ship it in someone else's mess to me has always been that flawed concept of the way we've introduced plastics. Someone else will deal with it. So you're taking on some pretty big things, you know, getting rid of plastic, bottom billion. How do you measure impact? How do you measure what you're doing? Or how do you like, you know, how do you get, how do you keep from being discouraged? You know, how you, man, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Am I really making an impact? Am I really making a difference? How do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing for us, it's so visible. So when we go to the countries that we serve, you know, when you talk to the people, when you have people that, you know, come beaming because their kids are now in school and tell stories of just the genuine impact, you know, we're blessed in that we physically get to see that impact. Uh, so, you know, we recycle just about a million kilos of plastic every month through our programs, and it's going exponentially on our growth. You know, we have tens of thousands of collectors in our programs. So, for us, it's very visible because we're uh, kind of a collector community first model that we get to capture those stories and, you know, actually talk to the people that we impact as part of what we do for a living. So, you know, it's nice when there's that direct, uh, direct feedback, you know, sometimes you think you did something good, but there's no feedback. How do you know? Did it matter? Did it this, you know, you know, we really get to bring that to life and bring that impact to life. Cause that's also part of how we get companies to start doing good where even for a lot of companies, it's not because consumers will buy more products if they use social plastic. For some, it's their staff will like their uh, office more if they're proud that their company is doing the right thing. So, you know, a really interesting uh, new trend is a lot of companies realizing that it's just a retention tool and a way to attract talented people when they're bringing more genuine purpose into a company because, you know, your staff knows when you're greenwashing your staff knows when you're doing something right and you can't fake it to the people inside. And this is where we found this great fit of a lot of people in the companies want to be part of something good, not just some corporate engine just for stakeholder returns. And, you know, when we treat the world as a stakeholder now, I think the paradigm is starting to shift. That's a good question. Good point. So how has like what you're doing now, let's suppose we're back in like what's 1850. Would you be able to do the same thing in 1850 or now or because of technology now, we call the flat world, everybody connected. Does that make it easier to do what you're doing right now? You know, it's interesting like the, that I've never had someone ask it that way. So obviously there was no plastic in 1850, but, you know, there was just an abundance of just, you know, chop stuff down, throw it out. So, you know, if there was the, the knowing <laughs> that this planet's going to get to this many people that we're going to start causing all these problems. You know, there really would be a, a way to prevent things before it got too late. I know there's always that Easter Island analogy where literally, you know, you have an abundance of trees and a society just chops down the very last tree and then realizes we're going to die because we don't have trees. But the same concept does at some point there would have been a time for someone to say, Hey, I think we got to start regenerating the trees and not just taking. So I, you know, we're big fans of even not sustainability and it's not offsetting. It's how do we live in a regenerative world where we make it better than it was before. And I think that's the paradigm that we need to be in now. So can you talk about process like this? Like when you went to Haiti, what's the process of going to a new country and, and doing everything you're doing? Like, do you have to meet with local officials? Like, how does that work? How do you even convince the country that you come in? How do you go about doing that? Yeah. So for us, we, we, you know, find people who are on the ground who have knowledge of any starting point for recycling. So somewhere like Haiti, most of our locations, we set up recycling centers where they weren't. 
Other locations, we certify, we bring in the technology, and instead of going and competing, we look at how can we bring in these social standards, kind of a social franchising system where everybody wins from doing it the right way. But so we hire a local team so that we have local people speaking the local language and really just kind of listen and learn at first, uncover what is the cultural nuances, you know, what is meaningful to this culture, then really have a way that we can just empower someone to be, yeah, that community entrepreneur who trains community entrepreneurs and, yeah, figure out how to make it localize it all the time. So, you know, for us, it doesn't require government funding or government investment. So if anything, we're always welcomed with open arms of how can we help clean up these communities, you know, through an organically spreading self-sustaining system that doesn't require them to build facilities, trucks, all of this, uh, which is usually a great combination of just being welcomed in. And sometimes, and I know in Haiti, we had one of the mayors do a ribbon cutting and then proudly say, this is going to be the proudest community in Haiti. We will be so clean. Like, you know, thank you for bringing this. But, and then it just becomes theirs. Sean, have you had a deal with the local government? It was like, yes, you know what you're doing. And how do you deal with that? That ever happened? Yeah, so far, there's never been any negative feedback. And again, if anything, um, you know, we just provide a service that they potentially would have had to eventually pay for uh, in a way that cleans it up. So, you know, fingers crossed, we've never encountered any conflict of that sort. And But we continuously just, yeah, learn to work with the way that you meet the right uh, people to approve everything. Often there's community cooperatives that are a huge part of these local communities. And yeah, you just really learn how to accept the right people, how to identify uh, the wrong people and, you know, navigate from there. So Sean, so I'm going to presume you're going to keep on going to different countries. What's the process for picking the next country you go to? Yeah, ours is kind of twofold. So for us right now, a lot of our, we work with large companies like SE Johnson, Henkel, and for them, there's a lot of areas that they're looking for that recycling infrastructure to get built. So their funding of our expansion into these regions is a big indicator of allowing us to do it properly, to hire the right staff, bring in the right teams, bring in the right systems. So right now, it's often uh, dictated by you know the right partners able to help us do it properly. We often look, most of our expansion is still in Southeast Asia the highest places where the most plastics going into the ocean, where there is that abundance of poverty. But over time, it's really those right partners that can help open the doors and help us do it properly and fast track our expansion is what really guides the way we go. My goal in about two years is through our application, really anyone with a smartphone and a scale could start our programs, pre-qualify to become certified, you know, pre-qualify for a bonus program and allow us to expand without being there first, which is really our long-term goal. Sean, you talked about this a little bit, but can you talk about how y'all have gamified plastic recycling? Yeah, so, you know, it's about looking at all the types of plastics and all the way that we can, you know, both dignify an individual, but bring in ways where some plastic, it's, you know, there's a market rate for it. We have a bonus payment on top of it. But the harder to recycle plastic, sometimes we need to get creative where we can have people qualify for, say, free health insurance for bringing in these other type of plastics, finding creative ways to put special bonuses on the hard-to-recycle material, finding the partners that do recycle it, and really just treating it as, again, it's not just a 
recycle for cash business, the more we can make it that life ascension program where someone sees hope and opportunity through this path of recycling is really, yeah, when we can put someone on that path that they see the value in, you know, being trained and learning. Often we teach basic literacy as part of what we do, education, and it's all these ways that we can just provide as much value as possible is how we can great creatively just change that paradigm that the plastic is too valuable to go on the ground, too valuable to go in the ocean. So talk about that. You seem like you've created almost like a, a separate currency. How hard has it been to get people to accept this currency that you're using or, or doing? Yeah, no, it's definitely part of the, it's called the learning opportunity as well, where we pay a bonus payment on top of the market price, which is always done in our digital savings. So we often introduce someone to their first ever digital savings account, which having, you know, someone being unbankable now having a safe savings is a, a huge part of what we do for that learning and education. So what we found for a lot of, the, you know, the women in the communities, if they bring money home, quite often that money goes away. But when they can have a savings for the first time and ensure that it's safe, choose to take it out when they want, you know, there's this paradigm of safety where, you know, no, it is a blockchain based digital, you know, uh, we have an asset backed token. One token is one US cent, but you know, no one we're dealing with in these countries thinks, Oh, blockchain, like it's here. They just say, Oh, I have savings. Like I'm so thankful. I have the, the option to save. So, you know, it's a training and education program, but also someone just highlighting the safety benefits really and making it as easy as possible for someone to use it for whatever they need and want most locally. So Sean, I, from my point of view, I've done a great job on social media. Like you've done some TED Talks, other people work for you done TED Talks, you're out there on social media. How important it is to put what you're doing out on social media and put it out there and you let, pe- and let people know about it? You know, it is, it, it is really powerful because when we first came up with the idea of, ah, plastic bank, we make plastic a currency. One, do, do people also share a vision? So we actually created almost a multi-million person social media following first saying, world, this is our vision. This is what we're trying to do. You know, our original Facebook uh, was all, do you demand that corporations use a social plastic? And a lot of people did get behind. I do demand that corporations use something. Now, what the hell is social plastic? So, you know, then they would look into it. Now that it's up and it's real, like we, we've literally been able to go to some of the world's largest companies and say, look, millions of people are asking for this and we can help you meet this demand. So for us, social media was such a way to show that there was a consumer demand first, then offer these large companies a solution to an existing demand, which was a huge way to how we were able to open doors and get rolling. So Sean, how many other companies are doing things like this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's got to be some new ones out there. I find if you look at any of the, you know, complete model that we do, there's somebody doing like a part of everything. But if you ask how many companies have, you know, an end-to-end transparent supply chain ecosystem that literally has a life improvement program that pays people more than the market rate and has not just a, you know, ocean plastic logo, but uh, serving the communities, communities first model, I'm not aware of anyone that does the entire piece. There's people that do the segments, but, you know, not, ne- not on kind of a globally, like exponentially scalable way. Sean, so what's your vision for the company? For example, like 10 years, you want to be able to say that you decrease plastic consumption by 10% or you increased, 
literacy of all this percent? What's your, your master plan or vision? Yeah, so for, for 10 years, we're looking at, you know, really the vision of having a billion people enrolled in the programs, whether it's the developing nations, the developed nations. There's always a part for somebody to play in making the solution work. So really that billion participants gathered together for local actions with a global impact is part of it. Um, and yeah, you know, we're really serious when we look at our goal is to turn off the tap and stop ocean plastic. So even we're looking at that billion like kilo a year mark to what our goal is to get to where, you know, through either that paradigm of just being responsible or having these value chains of recycling that really everywhere right now that plastic is leaking into the ocean, uh, we plan on being there to just phase that into something that never happens again. Even from our point, you know, it's our goal to phase out a collector network of people picking plastic off the ground as compared to every household and every community simply recycling it in one of our locations without it ever touching the ground. So let's say someone watches this um, podcast and they're, and they're motivated and like, man, I like what this guy Sean's doing. How are they getting involved? Yeah, so anyone can go to plasticbank.com. We even have fun ways that people can calculate their plastic footprint. We have different programs where they can go plastic positive and help you know extract more plastic around the world than they use. So we always look at, you know, as someone just works on getting better, you can work on using less, but ensure you extract more and just make a positive, powerful impact. And we have ways people can enroll their schools or faith programs or workplaces to just have programs that they can all uh, uniquely play a part. Sean, can you share your social media for both yourself and your company so people can reach out to you? Yeah. So everything's on at Plastic Bank for, you know, Facebook, for Twitter, for LinkedIn, for Instagram. and Myself, it's at Sean Frankson for all the networks as well. And plasticbank.com is a website. So, Sean, so, I mean, I mean, you're an entrepreneur building a company. Any advice for people out there starting a company, regardless of what type of company it is? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I'll circle back to kind of the way I started. I think one of the most intimidating things is thinking that you need to have all the answers. And anytime you're trying to do something big, like, again, you are not the person day one who can do everything you're trying to do. You just need to commit to become the person you need to be and just figure it out as you go. And once you can just lift that mind of, I could become that person, you know, I could, our, we could become that company. You know, it really just means that it's a path and it's a journey. And you don't need to be intimidated by the fact that you don't have all the answers. And that's a good thing. And for our listeners, we're going to have the links to um, Sean's uh, social media. On our show notes, you can find our show notes at www.cabinetshtlblog.com. Be sure to share the Cabinet HL podcast. So, Sean, we'll get into our talk. Can you provide us any last-minute wisdom or advice on any talk on any topic that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I guess the biggest thing that I'd just say is, you know, I find there's so much doom and gloom around the planet. One of the things I find, you know, I, I just like to talk that I am optimistic about the future and more so in the last two years than I've ever been that, you know, I, I get the gift of working with some people in large companies that legitimately are trying to change things for the better. We're seeing, you know, the Greta's of the world come out. We're like we're seeing change. Even we're seeing, you know, fast food companies offering like, you know, meatless products. We're seeing just such this change in so many ways that, you know, I just really want to share as much as the news and Facebook and all this is geared for algorithms of negativity. You know, I'm seeing so much reason to be positive in this world. 
positive that people can work for purpose, bring in purpose, and really start changing, you know, purpose to be the culture of humanity. And I think we're on our way. Tron, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thank, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinets HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinets HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinets HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it, don't you know, pump it. You've got to pump it.